podcast features forthcoming authors, both professional and student, to be featured in the forum in our print publication, New England Law Boston professors discussing their scholarship, as well as interviews with the symposia guests. Welcome to another episode of the New England Law Review podcast. My name is Brian Edmonds. I am the online editor of the New England Law Review for the 2019-2020 year and the host of today's episode. Uh, Joining me today is someone who I think requires no introduction. He's an educator, a scholar, and a pillar of the New England law community. Uh, For many students here, he's someone that they get to know during their first year, if they're lucky enough to have him as their civil procedure professor. I was lucky enough to have him not only as my civil procedure professor, but also I was able to take his class on electronic discovery. So please join me in welcoming Professor Jordan Singer. Thanks, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, professor, before we dive into some of the writing that you do outside of your work as a professor here, could you give our listeners um, sort of a summary of your background and how you came to teach here at the law school? Uh, sure. So um, I uh, maybe I'll start from where I at the point I graduated law school. I graduated law school in the year 2000, so I've been out for about 20 years. Um, I was at Harvard Law School, so that got me familiar with the Boston area. And then for the next 10 years, I sort of bounced around in legal uh, jobs between Boston and Denver. I went to Denver for a year and clerked for the Colorado Supreme Court, uh, came back to Boston and worked as a litigator at the firm of Goodwin Proctor, uh, primarily doing intellectual property litigation, but also other forms of complex litigation. Uh, then I went back to Denver for four years uh, to the University of Denver, where I worked as the research director for a wonderful think tank known as the Institute for the Advancement of the American Legal System. Um, In about 2010, uh, I had the opportunity to come here to New England Law and begin teaching, and I've been here ever since. Fantastic. Now, Professor, in addition to teaching at the law school and writing formal academic papers for law reviews, you also run a blog called the Interdependent Third Branch. For any of our listeners who are unfamiliar, could you tell them what what the Interdependent Third Branch is? Sure. So this is a a personal blog that I began uh, about three years ago in February of 2017. And the purpose of the blog is to track uh, court organization, administration, structure, and strategy. And uh, what I mean by that is that we often think about courts from the front end, from the perspective of the litigants and the media and the witnesses who are watching the courts in the courtroom. And that's fine. And when when we do that, we think often about judicial independence and the importance of judges being uh, decisionally independent without feeling political pressure and so on and so forth. But courts also are large organizations that can't be fully independent on their own. Courts need major resources and almost all of their resources have to come from somewhere else. So if we think just about the federal courts, they need to get their funding, their judges, their jurisdiction and so on from Congress. They rely on the president for judicial nominations and for support. They rely on the bar for a steady stream of cases to adjudicate. Uh, They rely on the media to tell their stories accurately. And they rely on the public to give them the legitimacy that allows them to operate. State courts, it's very much the same equivalent. And even internationally, we see the same things. So courts are not perfectly independent. In fact, in many ways, they are heavily dependent on their external environment. How do they survive in that environment? Well, they they offer up their own resources to others. And for most courts, that is a unique brand of adjudication that you can't get anywhere else. Put all this together, the most accurate way to describe a court is to say that it is interdependent, that it relies on its environment for 
various resources, everything from hard resources like money and staffing and soft resources like legitimacy. And in return, it offers its own resources back to, uh, to those or other organizations in the environment that rely on that. So the blog is designed to take a look at the interdependence of courts in their environments and point out daily examples of how courts do have to operate in this much more complicated environment. So for many law students and lawyers, when they hear about writing about the court system, they often think about journal articles and law review articles. How would you say that your blog posts differ from the sort of formalistic writing that law students are often reading for research and writing purposes? Sure. Well, a blog post typically is much shorter, and it gives me a, a much more freedom in terms of uh, not only what topics I want to touch on, but how I get to express them. If I think about a law review article, a formal law review article, or, or a law journal article, I want to make sure before that goes out that it is exquisitely researched, that it has a very clear point of view, that it is um, thorough, that it is properly footnoted, that it is written in the way that is the, uh, the, the most careful way that I can think to express the idea. With the blog, I obviously want to be sure that I'm writing in a, in a consistent and clear way, and I want to make sure that what I'm saying is backed up and supported, but I have more freedom to keep it shorter, to keep it lighter. Um, I can focus on areas that might not be appropriate necessarily for a formal law review article, even if they are very interesting and relevant to the courts as a whole. Um, and I can, I can address them much more quickly. Even a substantial blog post might take me two days of writing and editing, whereas a law review article might take me a year of writing and editing before it's ready to go. Now, with, with so much going on in our court system, you see it in the news, you see it on the internet, you see it on social media. What is it that, what inspires you to write certain topics? How do you go about choosing a topic for a blog post? So it's interesting. When I started writing this blog, I was doing it almost for selfish reasons, because once you see the courts as interdependent, you can't read any story about the courts without thinking about it in that way. You, you now see the courts as a much more complex organization. Uh, and so I started tracking stories through a combination of scholarship alerts and Google alerts and everything else. Uh, and now I get somewhere around two dozen alerts every day telling me what's going on in the courts at the state level, the federal level, and even internationally. Um, so I comb through those stories and I look for things that are interesting illustrations of how the courts operate. And usually one or two of those stories a day will inspire me to write something on the blog. So we've talked a little bit about what the blog is, how you were inspired to, to create it, and, and how you sort of get topics. Do you think you could take us sort of through what does your writing process look like on sort of an average general basis? I know it's probably different for every topic, but you, you know you mentioned you get your alerts. So what's sort, of, what's sort of the next step once you've found a topic? Sure. So uh, when, I, when I get the alerts, once I see a story, um, the reaction for a blog post tends to fall into one of two categories. There's what I might consider the quick and dirty reaction where I just see a story, I think it's very useful that the readers would enjoy, and I'm going to post, I post that story usually with a paragraph or two of commentary. That commentary is you know, usually just an explanation and then maybe a quick thought of what I think about it. But that type of post is much more designed to get the reader to click on the link and see the underlying story. Sometimes, again, that's a story from the newspaper, sometimes it's a report that came out and so on. 
But the, the thought process there is let's just get it out and amplify this because this is something that's useful and valuable for, uh, for my blog readers to know. Other stories I read, I read and I say to myself, there's really a lot more going on behind this story. And there, I can add some value through the blog by explaining exactly what is happening here. And so in that situation, I'll try to read the story, look for other companion stories on the same topic, and then try to piece it together with some explanatory material so that the, uh, the readers can understand not only what's actually happening, but why it might be happening. And in terms of your, your blog audience, is there do you, do you know what your audience sort of looks like at any point in time, or is it sort of... Uh, a big question mark up in the air. Well, it's a real mix. Um, you know, it's, it, on, on, on the back end of a, when you write a blog, on the back end, there's actually a lot of analytics available. So I can tell who's accessing the blog in terms of the numbers and the geography. Um, every once in a while, I'll be amazed and I'll get a, a spurt in Croatia and 50 <laughs> people from Croatia will have read something on my blog. And I, I find that, that interesting. I can also tell where the readers come from. So if a blog post catches fire on social media, I can tell what social media is, is sending it and so on and so forth. In terms of the actual identities of my readers, um, I, I don't know for sure. I know it's a mix. I certainly have lawyers and law professors and uh, law students and even judges who have um, read the blog, written to me, commented and so on and so forth. Um, for other people, I think it's just people who are interested in the operation of the courts. Often what I find is that someone will come to one story on the blog because it's of something of personal interest to them. And then they'll look around and say, oh, this is, this is interesting. And it's, it opens up a world that I hadn't really considered. So I think it's a wide ranging audience. I certainly aim for a wide range, but uh, everything from very experienced lawyers and judges all the way down to people who think about the courts once a year. So in terms of you, you have your, your work here at the law school, you have the, the blog that you run and you also do formal academic writing that's been published in multiple journals. Have you ever had a blog post that you've written sort of catch your interest and inspire something larger and more formal? Uh, so actually, yes, I have. Um, there's a piece uh, a, a piece of research that I'm working on right now that initiated itself as a blog post a couple of years ago. Uh, and the blog post was noting, this was at a time right when the Trump administration took over, and there was a, a number of judges who were being appoint, uh, nominated and appointed for federal positions. And I noted that, noticed that a lot of those judges who were being appointed were actually already judges at a lower court level. And so I wrote a blog post about what I call judicial cascades, the idea that once you appoint a sitting judge to a higher uh, seat, a seat on a higher court, you now have another seat to fill. And I was wondering how deeply down those cascades went, both within the federal system and the state system. So I, I posted a, a blog post on that. It, it got quite a bit of interest. And that got me thinking, well, can I find a way to look at this in a more robust, empirical way. So I'm in the process now of trying to track the last 50 years of federal judicial appointments from the Nixon administration to the Trump administration, every judge who was appointed at either the district court level or the circuit court level, and see whether that created a lower level opening in the federal or state uh, process, and then who filled that, and see if we can draw any broad conclusions over a 50-year uh, piece of evidence as to how judicial cascades work and, um, and, and you know, what lessons that might lead for future appointing presidents. That sounds fantastic. And I'm sure our listeners will be very interested to read the, the final article when it eventually uh, comes out. Now, our audience, as I've mentioned, consists of a great number of law students for this podcast. So I do want to specifically ask, in, in what ways are your blog posts sort of 
different from the writing that law students have to do that in their you know in their uh, classes when they have to write these big final exams or papers. Uh, is there any inspiration you think they could take from blog posts or lessons they could learn and, and bring into the classroom? Uh, sure. Well, I actually think there's one similarity between uh, student writing, again, whether it's for a paper or an exam and a blog post, even though they're very different types of, of writing. The one similarity is you always want to have a focused approach and you want to say something in a clear, concise and focused way. If you're writing a law school exam, often that focus comes from the call of the question. And this is something that is probably very familiar that I, I, I emphasize to, to my students, particularly in civil procedure. Always look for what you're being asked for on the test and answer that question and only that question. Uh, for, I think for a student paper, it's the same type of idea. You pick a topic, you, you focus in on a specific issue within that topic and then write as much as you can in a, in a meaningful way about that topic without trying to cover the breadth of everything. And for blog posts and even formal academic writing, it's the same thing. You need to pick a topic, have a very clear focus, and then write as much as you need to within that range of focus. But don't feel the need to cover absolutely everything, and in doing so, sort of lose the, the forest for the trees. Well, I mean, it's, all, it's almost impossible to, to cover everything and have a good writing if you just uh, word vomit onto the page or anything like that. That's right. And now that we've talked a little bit about what the interdependent third branch is and, and how you go about writing for it, um, I took a look at the blog. I've been I've been reading it uh, intermittently since I had you in my first year of law school. And I'd like to talk a little bit about a reoccurring theme that I noticed in some of the blog posts, which was social media. And for those who may not be aware, what are some of the issues that the courts are facing relating to social media use? The, the growth of social media has been a really complicated issue for the courts as they try to figure out not only how judges should be or could be on social media, but also how the impact of social media um, relates within the courtroom to you know the, the and, to, and to the general public. Um, let me let me talk first maybe about the the issue with judges because that seems to be the one that is the, the most difficult for the courts to sort out. Um, so, of course, judges are human beings, just like you and me. They have social media interests. They, many of them are interested in, in connecting with people on social media the same way that you know, non-judges are. And if you think about what judges try to do on social media, it's really no different than anyone else. They want to connect with friends or acquaintances or, or, or professional um, groups like that. They want to post either updates or opinions or whatever it is, depending on the social media outlet. And they want to react to other people's posts, either by liking it or otherwise. So judges do the same thing when they're on Facebook or Twitter or other social media outlets. The courts have struggled and judicial ethics groups have struggled with how judges should do this. Because to the extent that a judge uses social media in a way that um, suggests partiality or bias in any way, even if that was not intended, obviously that undermines confidence in the court system. And so the, uh, sort of on a piecemeal basis, courts, both state and federal, have really been trying to work to give some guidance to, to judges about how to use social media. And, and here's what we've been able to determine so far, at least from, from the, what we've been able to post on uh, in the interdependent third branch. Judges who use social media in a um, non-political way that does not suggest any uh, endorsement of any political views uh, can use it freely. And in fact, on Twitter, I had, a, I had a post on Twitter about a year and a half ago that looked at judges who use Twitter, not just 
privately, but openly and talk about legal issues on Twitter. The most famous of, of whom is probably Judge Don Willett of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, who has been on Twitter even since before then when he was a, a state Supreme Court justice on, on the Texas Supreme Court. He tweets regularly. He is a beloved tweeter uh, and there are others like him and everyone agrees that it's fine because what he is tweeting about is not controversial. It doesn't suggest that he, he would be uh, partish, partial or partisan in his, uh, in his rulings. On the other hand, we see judges occasionally being disciplined or disqualified because they do something on social media that does suggest some sort of partiality. So the blog just earlier this month tracked a situation about a Kentucky judge who was presiding over a case uh, in which one of the parties was the governor of Kentucky. This is not uncommon. Judges frequently have to deal with um, either legislators or members of the executive branch being parties. Um, the problem was that the sitting governor of Kentucky is a Republican. The judge had gone on Facebook and had liked a post that referred to the governor's Democratic challenger in 2020. That's all he did. He just liked the post. He didn't comment on it. He didn't share it with anyone. But it was determined that that was too much, that liking the post of the governor's challenger suggested that the judge might not be partial to both parties in the case, and he was therefore disqualified from being, being on the case at all. Um, there was another almost heartbreaking case, and this is the one that, that I, I blogged about. Again, I also thought it was quite stunning with respect to social media, about a judge in Houston, a state, a state judge in Houston, who well well-respected trial judge, who was thinking of running for the state Supreme Court. And in Texas, all judges must run for election. Um, and so he had to, at some point, determine if he was going to run. He announced through a suggestion on his Facebook page that he would possibly run for the state Supreme Court. And then learned to his great dismay that that announcement on Facebook alone had triggered a provision in the Texas state constitution that immediate, led to his immediate resignation. In other words, he resigned on Facebook merely by saying that he was interested in this other position. And his response was that I couldn't possibly know that. And in any event, it was just Facebook. It's not like I made a formal announcement. Uh, and the county commissioners who removed him said, we're very sorry, but we don't know how to create an exception for your accident. This would create a, a greater precedent. And we don't want that precedent where judges talk about those types of things on Facebook. So bottom line is the you know, it's getting sorted out. There are no clear rules, certainly on a national basis, but social media is a very much a third rail for judicial use at this time. And I'd imagine it's difficult with uh, judicial employees and clerks and things like that also being on social media, causing some issues as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. Anyone who works within the court system has to be very careful about what they say. And, and certainly that's one thing that they emphasize to clerks and employees once they start their work is that they, they can't talk about anything that happens in chambers. So you always have to be on the lookout for that. And, and that's a lot, there's a lot of self-discipline that goes into that. Uh, maybe uh, since we're mentioning self-discipline, the other issue that's come up for the courts is ordinary citizens using social media in the courtroom. For the longest time, courthouses would ban cell phones from even coming into the courthouse. And I think even here, the federal courthouse in Massachusetts still does not allow you to bring it in. Uh, but state courts have really struggled because people need their cell phones. They, they're going to sit in court all day and they have to worry about childcare issues. They have to worry about elderly parents. They have other things. They can't be without their phones. So courts are now allowing people to bring their phones back in. But of course, if you bring in phones, you're bringing in the possibility of social media. You're bringing in the, and, and the distractions that come with that. You're bringing in the possibility that someone could record something in the courthouse and then put that on social media. So there's a lot of 
difficult challenges that this technology has presented that the courts are still really struggling to, to settle. And in terms of we've sort of talked about uh, issues for judges and also issues that come with uh, the public bringing social media into the courthouse. What about lawyers? What kind of issues do potentially arise when lawyers are bringing social media to their practice and to the courts? Yeah, so lawyers' use of social media and cell phones has been uh, interesting in its own right because there are certainly some ethical issues uh, that lawyers have to worry about as well. They can't get tripped up on social media in terms of befriending someone who might be a client of someone else. Uh, and, and this is an issue that often comes up uh, with uh, discovery issues, particularly in, in civil electronic discovery, but, but even on the criminal side as well. Um, lawyers have to be careful how they use social media. They also have to be aware that social media is an enormous source of evidence. And so lawyers are now going more and more to social media accounts of potential witnesses, uh, criminal defendants, uh, other parties in other cases to see what's said on social media, and they're using those social media accounts to build their own cases. Um, so for, for lawyers, social media can be extremely helpful in the courtroom. It can also be dangerous if they make a misstep, and, and we're seeing examples of both as we go along. Now, this discussion we've been having about social media reminds me of a piece that you published on the New England Law Review's faculty blog about a, just about a year ago about, uh, I believe the title was, What Reckless Tweeters Could Learn from Jury Duty. Could you sort of explain to our listeners who may not have read uh, the blog the post what you were sort of arguing for in that particular piece? Sure. In, in that situation, I was uh, I was looking at the use of social media, in particular Twitter, uh, and how people tend to use Twitter to vent their emotions. Right. That seems to be an area where uh, Twitter has been um, cathartic for a number <laughs> of people. Um, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But we now live in a culture in which the ease with which you can vent your emotions and the desire to be the first person to do so um, have coalesced in a way that whenever anything noteworthy happens in the world, people rush to Twitter and sometimes to other social media to put their perspectives out there right away. There's nothing inherently wrong with that except what happens when it turns out you're reacting to facts that are not true. Um, we. We saw actually a very recent example of that with uh, the terrible tragedy with Kobe Bryant and his daughter and the other seven uh, individuals who were killed on the helicopter crash um, just recently. And, and in reporting that crash, a number of news outlets took to social media and reported wildly inaccurate information about who was involved in the crash and how it had happened because they wanted to be the first ones out there. The situation I was reacting to last year was the um, uh, allegations by the actor Jesse Smollett, who had been a fairly well-known actor from the Empire TV show, um, who you'll recall uh, alleged that he had been attacked and uh, in, in was essentially a racist attack on the streets of Chicago in the middle of the night. And in the immediate aftermath of those allegations, many prominent people got out on Twitter and reacted. So two separate uh, uh, presidential candidates, Cory Booker and Kamala Harris, uh, characterized the incident as a modern-day lynching on Twitter. Many Hollywood uh, professionals, uh, again, took to Twitter and basically tried to blame this on the culture that the president had, had created. Uh, a lot of people reacting to this idea of, of this, this terrible attack that, that Mr. Smollett had alleged. Uh, as we all know now, it came out later that the way he had alleged the attack to be um, does not appear to be what happened at all. And in fact, he was later charged although I think the charges were, were later dropped, but he was charged with um, 
basically inventing the the uh, the entire attack. And and the purpose of what I was trying to get at in this blog is that instead of rushing to tweet, and especially if you've got some comments, if if you're instead of rushing to tweet and get your views out there in a way that could cause harm when people react, wait 48 hours. Wait and see how the story develops. And the one place where we have that wait and see approach in this country is jury duty. Jurors have to sit there and have to be quiet while everything is presented on both sides of the case. And I have no doubt that every juror forms an opinion as to the defendant's guilt or innocence at the very beginning and has a, forms an opinion as to what happens. But instead of letting the jury vote based on that immediate reaction, jurors have to sit and listen to every piece of evidence and then decide whether that evidence comes together in the way that they had anticipated or whether they have to think about it more. And then they're forced to talk to each other and react to each other and learn from different perspectives. And in doing so, we have greater confidence that whatever the jury decides is more likely to have been what the truth was. And so the purpose of the Reckless Tweeters blog on, on the New England Law Review blog was to just emphasize to people that if we took a step back and actually disciplined ourselves to try to understand more of the facts before rushing to judgment, um, society as a whole would probably be a little bit better. And would you say that um, given the tendency that social media users have to react very quickly to things and that most people today are social media users, that our jury system is a is a way to sort of make them step back and prevent that sort of reckless reaction by forcing people to sit down, listen, listen to both sides of the argument, and like you said, talk to one another to, to sort of prevent that danger of someone coming into the courtroom, making up their mind, and just not listening. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It's it's uh, the jury system forces us to be self-disciplining. We have to have to listen carefully. We have to listen to other people's opinions in a jury room, whether we like them or not. We have to be respectful of everyone else's opinions. And at the end of the day, we can draw whatever conclusion we want, but it forces us to take the time to really understand what's going on. In a social media universe, we don't have that. And I don't want to suggest to anyone that it's easy to take a step back and say, oh, everyone else is tweeting about this. I'm going to wait. But having that self-discipline, particularly when a story breaks, uh, to say, I'm not going to put my views out there until and unless I've had a chance to really think about how this works, it doesn't hurt you down the road to, to put a little bit more out there. And, and you know, Unless you're in that field where you have to be the first, most of us aren't there. Most of us would be better off taking that step back. And I'm very thankful that the court system is still there as a, a beacon of hope on that front to at least suggest to us as, as members of the American public that we don't have to rush to judgment and that there is still a place in this country where you're not allowed to rush to judgment. And now that we've talked about sort of the, the, the blog, the, the writing process, and this, this issue of social media that I, that I noticed on your blog, are there any other sort of trends or issues, challenges that, based on your, your expertise, you think the courts are currently facing? So I think the big trend that I'm seeing, and it's, it's a somewhat distressing trend, is the growing populism in the United States and the reactions of both the extreme left and the extreme right in the way that they've been attacking the courts um, as, a, as a sort of the legitimacy of the courts as an organization. The courts have become the whipping boy, both for the left and the right, for any decision that they make that to which someone disagrees, or for that matter, sometimes for making no decision and just doing their jobs in a proper way. 
what worries me about this is that not that not that there's partisan fuss. That's that's always been the case, but the response of the courts traditionally has been to lay low, be quiet, and hope that the problem will sort of pass by without them getting into the fray. And that's worked successfully for many, many years. Now I'm not so sure that it's going to be successful anymore. I'm thinking more and more that courts are going to need to be more assertive about announcing their own interests and emphasizing to the public that they do stand for the rule of law, for due process, for equal protection, for everyone having an opportunity to have their fair day in court to tell their story. No one else is standing up for the courts in that way anymore, and the courts need to become more comfortable standing up for themselves. They don't seem to want to do that, and understandably so. Many, many judges and, and court administrators want to lay low. They don't want to draw attention to themselves. They don't want to be burned, and I, I respect that, and I understand it, but I'm, I'm becoming increasingly concerned that laying low only allows the people who are calling the court's names and trying to erode the legitimacy of the court to have that voice and, and an uncontested voice. Uh, and that that strikes me as, as very worrisome. And I think that's something that hopefully our listeners can keep an eye on and watch and be the, the group that stands up for the courts. After all, we are, most of us, hoping to be lawyers someday. So Absolutely. We'll, we'll be there to do that. And um, I know we talked a little bit about one of the uh, upcoming projects you're working on, but before we wrap things up, are there any other projects that you can talk about, maybe give our listeners a sneak peek about anything else you're working on? Uh, sure. One other project I could talk about, and again, it's 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 still a ways to go, and, and, and Brian, you know about this because you have been instrumental in helping me do the research on, on this larger project. Uh, but as part of the my sort of larger understanding of how the courts work as organizations and how they interact with their environments. Uh, I've been engaged in a long-term project to understand how the committees within the federal court system work and how they make decisions. And for the listeners who may not be entirely familiar with how this, how this process works, uh, the federal court system under the Supreme Court has an internal group called the Judicial Conference of the United States, which is made up of essentially the senior judges of, uh, of the book, John Roberts, and the senior judges of the, uh, the uh, appellate courts, the federal appellate courts, as well as um, some, uh, some key judges, or I should say the chief judges of the appellate courts and chief judges of many of the district courts. And their job is to you know, oversee the, the internal operations of the entire court system. Underneath the judicial conference, there's a number of committees, and the committees are tasked with everything from revising rules, to dealing with judicial ethics questions, to uh, managing the budget, and so on and so forth. And the operation of these committees is very interesting. There's judges involved, there are um, prominent practitioners involved, there are sometimes academics involved. Um, and I got very interested in how those committees work. And, and in particular, how does a committee identify a, an issue that might be in need of some tweaking or a, a need of a greater solution? How do they collect information, discuss it among themselves, much like the jury that we've been talking about before? How do they take these, this information, discuss it, come to a conclusion about what to do, and then get it, get it out there? Uh, so I'm in the process of looking at one committee, the Advisory Committee on Civil Rules, which, again, to students who have had me for civil procedure will find that it's no surprise that's the committee that makes the rules of, or the federal rules of civil procedure. And I've been following them as they basically created a single rule, um, a change to Rule 30b-6, which deals with depositions of corporations and other organizations. And so I want to tell the story in this, in this article about how the committee 
collected information and worked as a team to create this new rule, which should go into effect this coming December, and focusing really not just on the basic story of how they how they did it, but the deeper story as to how they worked collectively to develop shared models of, uh, of how of, of what the problem was, shared models of uh, what the possible solutions would be, how they sought external input from other organizations and other people who might be uh, affected, and how they worked with other levels within the court system in order to, to bring this rule to fruition. So it's been, uh, it's been a long time coming. It, it's been uh, probably the most complex piece of, uh, of uh, scholarship that I've ever worked on, uh, but with Brian's help and with a lot of patience and time, uh, it's getting there, and I'll look forward to uh, sharing that with your listeners uh, at some point uh, in the near future. Well, I, I can say I'm honored to have had the chance to work on it with you and see it see it as it keeps to come forward. And I, I can honestly say it's it's a piece that our listeners will want to find and, and read because it is it's going to be an absolutely fascinating read. And if one of the listeners wanted to contact you to possibly discuss the interdependent third branch, to uh, get access to some of your other writing, or discuss just issues of civil procedure in the federal courts, how could they get in contact with you? Uh, sure. So two ways, two easy ways to get a hold of me. One is through the blog itself. Um, the blog is at interdependentcourts.com. That's all one word, interdependentcourts.com. And I have a contact page there, so you could you could certainly contact me through that. Um, if you wanted to contact me directly, uh, you could also reach me at jsinger. Uh, at nesl.edu, which is my uh, New England Law email address. Uh, and I'm happy to engage in a conversation with any of your listeners. Fantastic. And Professor Singer, thank you so much for taking time out of, I know you have a very busy schedule and you took the time to sit down and talk with us. Um, We look forward to having you back on the podcast soon. And if any of our listeners are interested in coming onto the podcast as a guest or have a suggestion for future guests, please feel free to reach out to us. And you can do that by emailing forum at nesl.edu. That's forum, F-O-R-U-M at nesl.edu. Thanks for listening and have a great day.